There's a guy, David Dell, who lived in Sydney, 34 years old. He's my kind of guy. He was fun, full of life, loved family, loved adventure. And he took a dare. In fact, we've got his slide somewhere. He took a dare from a friend. I dare you to eat that gecko. Some of you may have heard the story. So being uh, that kind of guy, he ate the gecko. Within hours, he went into convulsions, and uh, salmonella uh, attacked his system from the inside, and with ten, within 10 days, he was dead. Now, I tell this story for a few reasons. For one, it could have been me. I, I'm that kind of guy. You dare me to eat something, and, and chances are I'm going to eat it. I've been dared to eat a lot of things, and, um, and I've eaten them. But the other reason I start the message this morning with this is that last week we introduced the wrath of God against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And it was all about God's wrath against those other people, the culture around us, the pagans, the unbelievers. Well, this morning we come to Romans chapter 2, and it deals with not the sin outside the church, it deals with the sin within the church. It deals with what we have ingested and it comes with just as much force, just as much focus, just as much accountability, not against those outsiders, but those among us, and even things within us. Uh, turn with me, please, in your Bibles this morning uh, to Romans chapter 2. It's page 10 in your journals, uh, for those of you that are following along in the journal. And by the way, if you haven't gotten yours, please do so out at the Information Center when we're done. Uh, it's a great resource to be able to follow along. The big shift from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 2 is Romans chapter 1 is all about them, theirs, they. Romans chapter 2 is all about you. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, O woman, every one of you who judges. And it goes on one you after another. Now, in contrast, just go back to chapter 1. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it known to them. It goes on. Verse 
23, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. But now we come to chapter 2, and he dials it in. No longer is the Apostle Paul dealing with the uh, unbelieving, non-religious, unchurched people around, but he's now dealing with those within the fellowship. You, which begs the question, to whom exactly is the book of Romans written? Whenever you study a book of the Bible, there's three basic questions you always want to ask. The author, the audience, and the occasion. The author, we know, is the Apostle Paul, Romans 1, verse 1. The audience is the believers in Rome. That's, that's repeated several times. But in chapter 1, we learn, and Paul repeats it in the last chapter of the book of Romans, that <clears throat> the book of Romans was written to believers whom Paul had not yet met. Which begs the question, okay, where did these believers come from? This is first century Christianity. If, if Paul, the missionary, had not yet been to Rome, where did the Christians come from who are now living in Rome? It's a good question. And the answer to the question is in one of our favorite places, Acts chapter 2. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men and women, of every nation under heaven. Acts chapter 2, verse 11, And visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Now let's just dial that in a little bit. So who are these people? Now follow this. These were, were Jews and proselytes. Proselytes are, um, they could have been Chinese, Japanese, Arabs, born anywhere, but now they have converted to Judaism. But that's not all. They were Jews who were living in Rome, which gave them kind of a double um, pedigree. They're, they're Jews but, but not just any Jews, these are Roman Jews. Like, 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 no matter, if they're with Jews, they're special. If they're with Romans, they're special. It's like a double blessing on these, on these Roman. But, but, but not only were they Roman Jews, they were wealthy Roman Jews who had enough cash to take a trip across the Mediterranean to be in Jerusalem for the feast day. Not everybody could do that. So, so these were wealthy Roman Jews. Well, not just that. These were wealthy Roman Jews who, of all things, were there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and heard Peter preach the first gospel message. Well, not only that, they are wealthy Roman Jews who weren't just there, they received the gospel. They were, they're now born again. So imagine this, wealthy Roman Jews who are now born again. Oh, but that's not all. 
They're not only born again, they're Pentecostal born again believers who are Jews and who are Romans and are wealthy. I mean, does it get any better than that? I mean, no matter what they might pride themselves in, they had all the bases covered. They were Roman Jews, wealthy, born again, and now spirit-filled, Pentecostals. What a, what a, what a group. And Paul goes after them. Paul, having laid this brilliant backdrop of the reason he's writing is to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. And the key to the obedience of faith is the righteousness of God. That's the power source. Well then, the power source needs a detonation device, and the detonation device is the gospel. So, so he first takes them to the righteousness of God, which is the power of God, but then the detonation device is the gospel, and he, he lays that out. But before they get too caught up in, in the power and the detonation of the gospel, now he lowers the sword. He wants to excavate the foundation of their whole framework and he shows how this thing, the wrath of God, the fact that God holds everyone accountable. And he starts with those outside the church in Romans chapter one, and he shows what the wrath of God looks like on behalf of unbelieving people in society. But before his target audience could get too smug, before they could start puffing out their chests and, 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 and getting the swagger on. He, he takes the same sword of the Spirit, which is a double-edged sword, the same sword that he held out, that cutting edge against the unbelievers, now he takes it and uses it against the believers. But you... You, you, not non-religious, you religious people, not the ungodly, you godly ones, not the unrighteous, you righteous ones, you who hold to a moral standard, you who claim to know God. Now what he exposes here in Romans chapter two ought to be a concern to every one of us. The wrath of God, Romans 1.18, we said is one of the most offensive verses in the entire Bible. That the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people. That's offensive. It's offensive to think that there is one true God who holds everyone accountable and who even holds accountable those who are ungodly. That's, that's the atheists, that's, that's all the, the other religions of the world, all the ungodly, all those 
who are not properly related to God. But not just those that are theologically off, but those who are morally off. All the ungodly and the unrighteous who are morally off. God holds them accountable. Not only does he hold them accountable, it says that his righteousness is being revealed. Currently. This isn't just talking about some future moment when God's going to drop the, the hammer and hold everybody accountable. But, but today, he's holding everyone accountable. That God's wrath is already being revealed. And not just against some. It says all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. That's offensive. Well, not only is the righteousness of God and the wrath of God offensive, it's all, now listen carefully, it's also dangerous. The wrath of God is dangerous because improperly handled It can, when we swallow it inappropriately, the very reality of the wrath of God can eat us up from the inside out just as if we swallowed a gecko lizard. And there's four symptoms of the inappropriate response to the righteousness and the wrath of God. And they're all laid out for us right here. Number one is judgmentalism. Look at the first two verses. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, O woman, every one of you who judges. There it is. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Judgmentalism is the first symptom of hypocrisy. When we take the law of God and rather than applying it first to ourselves, we apply it to everyone else around us. And that is exactly what, where so much of the church is today. And let me say to us as a people, as a family this morning, any extent to which the judgmentalism, the judgmental spirit exists inside our spirit, we have to get rid of it because it will eat us up from the inside. We who condemn others for their immorality, do we allow the same conviction of the Holy Spirit to take the same principle of the law and apply it to us? Or do we condemn the gay and lesbian community while we ourselves are addicted to pornography? Do we call other thieves and, well, I just borrowed it. 
and didn't give it back. Others lie, we just exaggerate. Others murder, yeah, I, I, I harbor hatred against so-and-so and that, but is that really as bad? Jesus started his ministry by saying, don't think I came to abolish the law. Because I didn't come to abolish it, I came to fulfill it. And unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he took that whole matter of adultery. And he said, you have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone that looks upon a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You have heard that it was said you shall not murder. But I tell you, anyone that says you fool is liable of judgment. And anyone who harbors anger and hatred in his heart towards someone else has already committed murder. What is all that? It's, this, it's, it's the fact that the word of God is a double-edged sword. When we use it against others, it comes back on ourselves. We have no business applying the word of God to others before we allow it to search ourselves. Judgmentalism will eat us up from the inside. And it has absolutely no place, and it needs to be exposed, not just in the church, but in our own hearts. The second disease that will eat us up on the inside is presumption. Look at verses two and three. Do you suppose, O oh man, O oh woman, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Look at these words. Do you suppose? Do you presume? What's being exposed here? Presumption. God wants to expose in us any level of presumption on the grace of God. John the Baptist dealt with it. You call yourselves children of Abraham, don't you know that God could raise up from the stones themselves children of Abraham? You need to enter the same way everybody else enters in, it's by the mercy of God. Don't bank on your presumption. Don't bank on the fact that, that Fred Hartley's your pastor. Don't bank on the fact that your mother was a godly woman. Don't bank on the fact that you're part of the Christian Missionary Alliance. Don't bank on anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ. Presumption. God, drain it from within us so that it does not eat us up from the inside. Now, behind judgmentalism is presumption. Behind presumption is the third disease on the inside that can eat us up, and it's the disease of spiritual pride. Being self-impressed. To be self-impressed is to be self-deceived. Look at verses 23 and 24, Romans chapter two. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God have mercy. 
Paul had it right when he said, far be it from me that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Oh, Paul is, is going after now his audience. He's dialing it in for those who were Jews, Romans, rich, born again, baptized in the Holy Spirit, Pentecostals. They had everything they could pride themselves in going for them. And Paul went after them, dealing with their internal issues. And underneath it all was that layer of pride. They were deceiving themselves. They could have been proud in their Jewish heritage, in their Roman heritage, in their wealth, in being there on the day of Pentecost, on being born again, on being filled with the Holy Spirit, all that could have been reason for pride. And Paul said, don't you dare boast because you're Roman. Don't you dare boast because you're Jewish. Don't you dare boast because you're born again. Don't you dare boast because you're Pentecostal. If you're gonna boast, you boast because you're a follower of Jesus Christ that he wrote you on his hands when those hands were nailed to the cross. And your righteousness comes from him and him only. Now we've got three of the four diseases. But the last one is really the capstone. It is in many ways the, the proof positive of hypocrisy. Did you know that you can come every Sunday and sit on the front and, and sing with your hands in the air and yet God doesn't want your worship? Did you know that? Did you know you could get up at five in the morning and spend two hours with God in the Bible and on your knees in prayer and praying for all the stops, all the missionaries, your pastor, the church, and, and all the rest of it, and God doesn't want your prayers? Did you know that's possible? There's one element that God is looking for in your worship. He's looking for it in your prayer He's looking for it in your obedience, in everything you say and do. And if this is lacking, you may have a disease that needs healing. The operative word here in the positive is repentance. The operative word in the negative is an unrepentant heart. Look at the text. The second half of verse 4. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, see, he's bringing in that word we looked at a couple weeks ago in Romans chapter 
1, verse 18, the wrath of God. Your impenitent heart storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What is God looking for in me as I come, whether it's Sunday or, or Monday or Saturday afternoon or in my workplace or in my home with my children? What is God looking for in my response to him? He is always looking for repentance. Worship without repentance is superficial. Jesus gave this as a most remarkable illustration. He said two people went into the temple to pray. One left forgiven and the other left unforgiven. He said the one guy went, lifted up his face, and he said, thank you that I'm not like this other person. Now, he, he had all four diseases. He had judgmentalism. He was judging. He had presumption. He presumed to be right with God. He had pride because he was, felt superior. And he totally lacked repentance. He had an unrepentant heart. Short prayer revealed all that. But then Jesus said there was a man next to him who beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinful man. Now what did he have? He had the opposite of that other guy. He had repentance. He was not judgmental of anybody but himself. He didn't presume on God's grace. He begged for it. He was not prideful. He was humble and he was broken. And the capstone, he was repentant. Brothers and sisters, this morning, would you allow God to inspect your heart? Would you allow God to use the two-edged sword not to judge anyone but yourself and to say, Lord, to any extent that I become judgmental of others, would you remove that judgmental spirit so that it doesn't eat me up from the inside? To any extent to which I've been presumptuous on your grace and have lacked gratitude, would you remove that presumption from my spirit? To any extent to which I become spiritually prideful, Lord, deal with me, break it in me. Remove any, any cell of pride from this heart of mine that would boast in my own accomplishments, my own pedigree, my own station in life. And to any extent that inside of me I have been nurturing an impenitent heart, would you deal with it? In Jesus' name. I started with a tough illustration. Frankly, that's the worst illustration I've used in years. A guy that eats a gecko lizard and is dead 10 days later. I mean, that's disgusting. 
That is, that's a rough one. But I want to end with a good one. You might have heard this story, but this summer, a church in Indiana, it's a large church, they have about 10,000 on a Sunday, eight campuses. They took an offering to pay off medical debt for those in the community. Now they raised 30,000 bucks, which for a church that size, you know, you could think, well, they could have done 10 times that, but praise God, they raised 30,000 bucks. But get this, the name of the church is Northward Church. They raised 30,000. They gave it to an organization called RIP, Rest in Peace Medical Debt. That organization knew how strategically to leverage the money to not cancel $30,000 worth of medical debt, but to cancel a whole lot more. Because many hospitals know they're never gonna get that money. They'd rather settle for this and, 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 and get at least something to pay off their debt. So with that 30,000, they were able to pay off $4 million worth of medical debt. Yeah, that's a wow. We've been paying medical debts, but we don't know how to do it. So I, I, I want to research this and uh, find out how, how you leverage that kind of money. $4 million. Well, this morning, we're about to come and receive communion. What we sometimes call the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup. And, and we're about to be offered this, and any of us here this morning are welcome to come and take it. But before we even move, I want to point you to what's more impressive than a $30,000 offering canceling $4 million worth of medical debt. I've got a payment and a result that far exceeds that. Sometimes a little good goes a long way. And when Jesus Christ voluntarily hung on that cross, he took your spiritual debt and my spiritual debt and the spiritual debt of every person in this room, of every man, woman, and child who, who's lived through the ages from every nation. That one life, the blood that Jesus shed on that cross, one person canceled potentially your debt, my debt, and the debt of every other person who's ever breathed. That's results. And when you recognize the worthiness of Christ's sacrifice, 
That will expunge out of you judgmentalism of others. Presumption. Pride. Spiritual pride. Unrepentance. And you will come, instead of with judgmentalism, with mercy. Instead of presumption, gratitude. Instead of pride, humility. And instead of unrepentance, you will come repentant. Not being glad that you're not as bad as somebody else, but that Jesus took and paid your debt. Hallelujah. Lord Jesus, in me, remove every cell within me that is judgmental. Remove every cell in me that's presumptuous. Remove from me every cell that is self-righteous. And remove from me every cell inside my heart that is unrepentant. And replace it with mercy, gratitude, humility, repentance. Lord, judgment begins with the household of God and repentance begins with the household of God. Hallelujah. Now, I'm just about done. Romans chapter 2 ends with two remarkable verses. It's like he dials it in even sharper and shows what it all comes down to. Verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And what I want to say to us this morning is God wants your heart. God wants to change your heart. The whole move of, of forgiveness starts within. The grace of God is applied to the heart. It's not our outward thing that's nearly as important as our heart. And God appeals to you this morning, and he says, I want your heart. I came for your heart. You know, Jesus was wounded in seven different places. His head, his hands, his feet. Sweat drops of blood, his face was beaten, spit on. But the final wound was from a spear below. It punctured under his rib cage up into his pericardium, and all his, the rest of his blood and body fluid flowed out of that wound, it says. But the point is, is that 
The final wound of Jesus went all the way into his heart. And it's because he wants your heart. He wants to receive your heart. Would you trust him this morning? Would you give Jesus access to your heart? Those serving communion, if you'd come and get in place, please, there'll be those at the back of the aisles and those at the front of the aisles. We're going to respond. And if today you've trusted Jesus, you've received from Jesus mercy, you've received from him repentance, you receive from him gratitude, you receive from him humility, then in response to your faith, to express your faith, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this to point to the fact that you have no righteousness of your own, but what you've received is from Jesus. Lord, we bless the bread and the cup, even as Jesus took bread in his hands and blessed it. We bless this bread and this cup, and we exalt the name of Jesus over every uh, tray, over every cup, and we pray your blessing on us as we receive this morning. In Jesus' name.